Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. And today's story is a perfect example. I know we're in the middle of our Marilyn Monroe Mirrorball episodes, but friends, the whole scene that's coming up next with Marilyn and ultimately her relationship with the Kennedy brothers, but all of that history that we're investigating was shaped so long ago because the Kennedy boys learned it by watching their father. Dominic Dunn will write a ton about the Kennedys during his career, but it is this story intersected at exactly the right moment in our Marilyn arc of episodes that I think provides a bit of insight into our future happenings. This is the tale of Gloria Swanson and Joe Kennedy. Let's investigate. talked about Patricia Kennedy, wife of Peter Lawford, in this current arc. But the Kennedy girls have it very different than the Kennedy boys. There are two completely different sets of rules. How do we get to the Kennedy kids? We have to connect Rose Fitzgerald and Joseph Kennedy. And there's no trashy affair for Joe, many of them, without the infamous marriage first. Joseph Patrick Kennedy, born September 6th, 1888. He's Irish-American. He's born in Boston, Massachusetts. Big dreams Joe has. His dad, PJ, is a politician and businessman, so I suppose Joe learned it by watching his dad, too. But Joe wants to be a millionaire. He's on the make. He will attend prestigious schools, including the Boston Latin School, where he plays baseball, and he's class president Joe will then move on to Harvard, where he is a member of the Hasty Pudding Club, graduating in 1912. By 1914, Joe is looking to land a premier bride. And holy Catholics, he finds her, Rose Fitzgerald. Irish Catholic gal, her father, is a super big deal politician, way higher up than Joe's father. And Honey Fitz, that's Rose's dad, he hates Joe Kennedy. Like he does not want or recommend this marriage. Honey Fitz does not approve. Honey Fitz disapproves so strongly about his daughter Rose dating Joe Kennedy that Joe has to do all of his courting with Rose outside, and Joe will even propose on the sidewalk to Rose because Honey Fitz won't let Joe Kennedy in his house. No matter. Rose wants Joe. He has red hair. She thinks he's awfully sexy. Their love will not be stopped. Now, I don't want to let anybody fool you. Rose Fitzgerald is no wilting flower. A little quick bit here. Rose is denied membership within the Junior League, so Rose is going to make her own club, and it will become more exclusive than the Junior League ever dreamed. What I'm saying is don't mess with Rose Kennedy, but hold on to her until the end of this tale because we're going to come back to Rose and possibly understand her motivations a bit more. 
but it is October 7, 1914, where Joe and Rose marry. They begin having kids immediately, the first in 1915, quick succession of kids from that point, and by 1919, Joe Kennedy is making all kinds of cash, hustling down the stock market with insider trading, lots of illegal things there. He'll make a million dollars. Awesome. His goal is complete, but it's not really, because Joe's going to meet some mobsters here that he will remain friends with for life, but these are especially helpful, the mobsters are, during Prohibition, which lands Joe into making even more money. When you have all that cash, you go to Hollywood, and that's what Joe does. He's going to take all of his money over to Hollywood because Joe can really shake him down there. Joe Kennedy thinks Hollywood is a bunch of amateurs, and he certainly can make better films than any of those clowns. Joe Kennedy will become part owner of RKO, and things are going great for Joe. He's living the high life, lots of honeys. He's got all the benefits of the reputation of being a stable family man back home, but trust me, he's having an awful lot of fun in Hollywood. I want to leave Joe here for just a second, just to give a little backstory on Gloria Swanson, who was worth a whole episode for sure. She's a legend, but let's pick up with Gloria Swanson in the early 1920s. It is Cecil B. DeMille that makes Gloria Swanson a star by the 1920s. And hey, it's a time of women's liberation. Gloria Swanson is the poster girl for it all. Gloria Swanson has a few marriages before we get to the husband that she will be with when she meets Joe Kennedy. Gloria's first husband was Wallace Beery, and that was pretty terrible. She was young. It was a mistake from day one, and it's over pretty fast. The next husband, worth a mention here, is Gloria's second husband, Herbert Somborn. When they're married, Herbert is the president of Equity Pictures and will go on to create the very famous Brown Derby restaurant in his time. This marriage of Gloria's runs from 1919 to 1923 or so, with Herbert Somborn eventually accusing Gloria Swanson of adultery with no less than 13 men. The divorce is so scandalous that a morals clause was included in Gloria's next studio contract. This is going to get us to 1923. And I need you to know that Gloria will be one of the leading stars of silent films in the 1920s. Gloria will transition to talkies as well. But in the 1920s, Gloria estimates that she spends about $8 million dollars. Think about $8 million in the 1920s. Gloria's always working, and she's doing all of this loving and marrying and scandalizing while still constantly working in films. Gloria makes multiple films a year through the late 19-teens to the early mid-1920s. After the divorce from Herbert, it is time for husband number three, Henri. Henri de la Falaise is from the famous Hennessy Cognac family. Henri is a French aristocrat, and he's an aristocrat really without the cash. He still has to work for a living, but he does have a really fancy title. Henri 
and still having to work for a living, this is how he meets Gloria. Henri is her translator, while Gloria is filming on location in France in 1924. And here, the most famous movie star in the world meets handsome French aristocrat without a lot of cash, but a really good name. And come on, it's Paris. It's the middle of the 1920s, and we would probably be in love too. But this romance with Gloria Swanson and Henri causes a sensation. Gloria is now royalty. I mean, she had to wait for her divorce from her marriage number two to come through, but Gloria and Henri will marry January 1925. She comes back to the United States and is now a French aristocrat. She has a title. There are parades given for her. It's incredible, right? This marriage of hers will fascinate the United States. Gloria Swanson leaves Paramount to take a deal with United Artists, where she will have the ability to not only act, but produce as well. This is in 1927. Gloria is looking to become an independent producer with United Artists. In doing so, Gloria turns down a million dollars a year. That's her contract offer from Paramount. A million dollars a year in 1927. Huge dollars for an actress in Hollywood those days. Turns it down, though. And she is working at United Artists and producing films, and it doesn't go all that great. These films aren't really working out, and Gloria, after spending $8 million, is losing the rest of the cash that she has. Which is how Robert Kane tells his friend Gloria Swanson, hey, I think I can help you out. I know a really smart guy when it comes to money. Robert Kane will ask Joe Kennedy to help his buddy Gloria out with her financial troubles, and there's a meeting set up at the Renaissance Room of the Savoy Plaza Hotel on November 11, 1927, and here the trouble begins. I'm going to excerpt the evolution of this night from no less a stellar writer than Doris Kearns Goodwin. She will write of this within her book, The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, An American Saga. At the time they met, Swanson was 28 years old, with more than a decade of successful films behind her. Radiant with a passion to take from life every opportunity brought to her by her looks, her charm, and her intelligence, she was a deceptively small woman with bright eyes high cheekbones, and a large, sensuous mouth. Her skin was pale, her cheeks were painted red, and her hair was dark. The excessive contrasts were a little too odd, a little too striking to be considered natural beauty, but she had a gift for throwing a romantic glamour over herself that produced a remarkable effect upon everyone she met. Having risen to the top in the mad lush years of the 20s, Gloria Swanson had decided early on that while she was a star, she would be, quote, every inch and every moment a star, unquote, so that everyone, quote, from the studio gateman to the highest executive will know it. Gloria's home is the home of a great lady, proclaimed Adela Rogers St. John in the September 1927 issue of Photoplay. Swanson argued later, in those days, the public wanted us to live like kings and queens. So we did. Why not? We were in love with life. 
We were making more money than we ever dreamed existed, and there was no reason to believe it would ever stop. For her part, Gloria knew almost nothing about the attractive-looking man with sandy hair and bright blue eyes who was now seated across the table from her. Advised by First Nationals Robert Kane that he was a banker who could help her solve her financial problems, she found that he didn't resemble any banker she had ever known. There was a bluster and a boyishness in him that most successful bankers had long since shed. Moreover, with his solid build, kept in good shape by regular exercise, his winning smile, and his tendency to break into peals of laughter and whack his thigh when something funny was said, he proved himself from the start a most pleasing companion. Apart from his manner and his accent, Swanson recalled his hands were the most noticeable thing about him. They looked unused to work she recorded in her memoirs, and there were wide spaces between his fingers. He gestured often and animatedly with them when he talked. Finally, Swanson recalled he even dared to ask if she minded telling him why she had turned down a million dollars a year from studio mogul Jesse Lasky, and his enthusiasm was so direct and open, Gloria recalls, that she had no qualms talking about it, even to the point of admitting that since that day, she had passed many an anxious moment. But she bravely concluded she would do it again tomorrow. I would have been the second or third person in movie history to sign a million-dollar contract, but I was the very first to turn one down. At this remark, Joe laughed so merrily and so unaffectedly that Swanson found herself deliberately saying more clever things just to entertain him. As for Joe, his new relationship with Gloria, who was considered by many to be Hollywood's reigning sex goddess, must have served to swell the triumphant intoxication of days when he was flush with his own success and was more and more conscious of being admired and respected. In the weeks that followed their first meeting, Their acquaintance ripened fast, with Rose safely ensconced in Boston awaiting the birth of their eighth child. Joe felt free to spend as much time with his new client as he wanted. And it begins. Goodness. Now is a terrific time to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Back on the flip with the middle and end of this story. Okay, y'all. So Joe meets Gloria. Joe Kennedy has never seen anything like Gloria Swanson. She's a Hollywood sex goddess. And Joe Kennedy is a man who's not going to be stopped getting what he wants. She's 28, twice divorced, currently married, no regard for cash. And Gloria Swanson was a feminist before there was such a thing. Joe is 37, at this time married for 12-ish years, seven kids already out, eighth kid currently cooking in rows, Joe is about to welcome in some manic pixie dream girl time here. He wants Gloria Swanson and he wants her bad. And to be fair, Joe Kennedy can business. So he is naturally like, hey, Gloria, I can help you. Let's make a partnership. I have cash and I really believe in your dreams and your ambition and your career. But truly, Joe doesn't. 
Joe just wants to get Gloria Swanson into bed. But Joe is going to make the long play on this one. He will get the deal done, the financial one, and in so doing, will invite Henri, remember, Gloria's husband, and Gloria on vacation. Come down to the beach. Holy cats, now it's party time in Palm Beach, Florida. Good times. There's cocktails and drinks and rest and relaxation. And maybe the undercover (laughs) name of this trip is how to make Henri's wife your mistress. Because old Joe is going to charter a boat every single day for Henri. Literally getting Henri into international waters so that Joe Kennedy can seduce his wife, which Joe does with a little bit of an anticlimax. Gloria recounted of this time of Joe Kennedy, he moved so quickly that his mouth was on mine before either of us could speak. With one hand, he held the back of my head. With the other, he stroked my body and pulled at my kimono. He kept insisting in a drawn-out moan, no longer, no longer now. He was like a roped horse, rough, arduous, racing to be free. After a hasty climax, he lay beside me, stroking my hair. Apart from his guilty, passionate mutterings, he had still said nothing cogent. That three minutes, the full-on culmination of the passion for Gloria and Joe, but from that moment, the affair is on. Gloria Swanson is hooked. She's never seen anything like Joe Kennedy, and Joe just has to have her. Has to have her without interruption. So Joe, (laughs) helpfully, will arrange a job for Henri back in Paris. That gets him out of the country. International waters wasn't quite enough. How about France? Henri will take that job. He's got to work. And Joe and Gloria will carry on their affair for about three years. A little bit of trash talk here. This is terrible. Joe will take Gloria yachting one day with his wife Rose and his mother-in-law. Yeah, seriously, for real. Gloria Swanson will say that Rose Kennedy was always very motherly to her. But Rose totally knows that there is an affair happening with Joe and Gloria. But Rose is proud. Remember, she's the founder of the Ace of Clubs, her exclusive club. Don't mess with her. There's a whole nother side of Rose Kennedy and what she knows and how she knows it. Hold on to that for just a few moments. Because at this time, literally, Joe and Gloria are an open secret in Hollywood. Everybody knows about it. But the press is not talking about it. Not only will Gloria fall for Joe's three-minute tango, But Gloria will pretty much give Joe Kennedy full access, personally and financially, to her affairs. All of them. It is decided that they're going to make a movie, originally titled The Swan. It's known now as Queen Kelly, but it will become a swan song. Queen Kelly is over budget and over schedule and loses almost a million dollars. This film was never released within the United States, but is now regarded as a masterpiece. The next film that Gloria will star in is a talkie for her, but Gloria's kind of having some rough times. She's lost a lot of cash, silent movies are ending, and Gloria's thinking quite rightfully that, Joe, you're not really helping me get out of my financial mess 
In fact, you're adding to it. To make matters a little bit worse, Rose Kennedy is not the only one that knows about the affair that Joe and Gloria are having. Henri will send a letter to Gloria where he states that he knows about the affair and he is out. This letter is something else. Henri will write to Gloria, The fire has burnt the beautiful temple that was our love. We thought it was built of marble, and we wake up to find it is crumbled like the dust of clay. Goodbye, darling. It is all, all over now. Goodbye, Gloria. Henri, husband number three, is done. Now, just to add a little bit of a post note here, Gloria and Henri do remain close. And Henri does some incredible things in getting brainy type people, intellectuals, out of Europe from behind Nazi lines in World War II. Gloria Swanson will set up an invention and patents company with an office in Paris, which allows Henri to get the papers for these scientists to get out of the country. All of the brains that Gloria helps out will call her Big Chief. And Gloria, at least in the recollection of time, appears to have really loved her husband Henri. In 1950, many years after this, Gloria will write about it. My marriage to Henri gave me the only real peace and happiness I had ever known or have ever known since. Of my five marriages, this one came the nearest to being what I, in my housefrau heart, have always wanted a marriage to be. He was then and remains, in memory, a more delightful companion than any I have known. Terribly sentimental. But, right, she's writing in 1950. That's 20 years after Henri is out because... He realizes his wife is throwing everything away for an affair with Joe Kennedy, which is ultimately going to lead to nothing. Although, to be fair, 1950 is a pretty good year for Gloria Swanson, rising back to the top of the film world with the masterpiece film Sunset Boulevard, co-written and directed by Billy Wilder, again married to Audrey Wilder just the year before in 1949, Dominic Dunn is really good friends with both Audrey Wilder and Janet D. Cordova, and I can only imagine how much hot gossip Nick gets from the two of them. But again, it all connects. Nothing's linear. Everything's connected. Okay, let's get back to 1930 now. Henri is left, and Gloria, with the on and off Joe thing, is maybe starting to get a little bit suspicious. Maybe Gloria's a little heartbroken over Henri, who she does love, and has a little time on her hands one day, Gloria does, and she begins checking her books. And in her financial records, she sees that Joe has bought himself a brand new Cadillac on her dime. This does not sit too well with Gloria, who in 1930 is not doing as great as Joe with her financial affairs. Gloria thinks that Joe Kennedy has a lot of damn nerve to expense his luxuries on her bill. So one night, they're having dinner with friends, Joe and Gloria are, and Gloria will call Joe out on it. What's up with the Cadillac? What's up with you 
essentially robbing my bank account blind. Joe, like the true gentleman he is, does not try to make an excuse, doesn't try to justify it. He just gets up from the table and walks away. Yep, gets up, walks away, never to see or talk with Gloria Swanson again. Just walks. And now Joe Kennedy is out of Gloria's life, personally and professionally. Thanks for nothing, Joe. The thing I want you to know is in 1929, Joe Kennedy can afford his own Cadillac. Joe Kennedy has about $4 million at this point in the bank from all of his nefarious deeds. That original million is going to grow even further once the Great Depression hits. At this time, Joe Kennedy will invest heavily in real estate, ending up in 1935 with about $180 million. Nobody fared too well during the Great Depression except for Joe Kennedy. That $180 million, translated in today's dollars, would be about $3.4 billion. How does Joe accomplish this rapid turnaround? In 1932, Joe Kennedy will become the SEC commissioner for Franklin Roosevelt, which is a lot like saying, hey, Rooster, I have a job opening in the fattest hen house in town, and you're the rooster I need. Joe is essentially brought in to make laws to keep others from doing what Joe has made a fortune on. So, awesome. In 1932, with Joe being pretty savvy as well, Joe will tour Europe with his new friend and business partner, the son of President Roosevelt. His name is Jimmy. With this kind of access, Joe Kennedy can get into any meeting, anytime, anywhere and will proceed to line up foreign importers of every liquor. Bottles are just sitting on boats, waiting for the repeal of Prohibition in 1933. At this time, Joe Kennedy will become the exclusive distributor of Gordon's Gin and Dewar's Scotch. And by the time this happens, again, Joe, plenty of cash in the bank, Kennedy's off to appease Hitler, working as the ambassador to Great Britain. Joe and the family are not hurting financially. And truly, in my opinion, Joe Kennedy had a lot of time to even things up with Gloria Swanson. And he never does, as far as I can tell. Again, I reiterate, thanks for nothing, Joe. But perhaps another thanks for nothing here. And I promised we'd get back to it. How does Joe's wife, Rose feel about all of this. Again, these dynamics are fascinating, laying down the foundation of so much Kennedy dysfunction to come with all the kids and so many of these patterns repeating. Taking this again from Doris Kearns Goodwin, writing from the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, an American saga. For the 38-year-old Kennedy, the affair with Gloria was a relentless pursuit of more, a quest to have it all, to live beyond the rules in a world of his own making, a world filled with excitement, stimulation, and novelty. For the most part, he and Rose still had a strong and satisfying relationship, better indeed than many of the couples they knew. There was true intimacy in their long talks about their children and their future, and there was comfort and tradition in the many rituals they shared. 
From all accounts, neither partner had any complaint or at least any they gave voice to. The marriage was stable and traditional. Yet from everything we hear about Joe's frequent involvements with other women, it is clear that his sexual drives were not satisfied within his marriage. There is a story told by Rose's lifelong friend, Marie Green, that strongly suggests that Rose held a very circumscribed view of what constituted proper sexual behavior for a practicing Catholic. With her husband, Vinny, Marie spent many Friday nights playing cards with Joe and Rose. As she tells the story, Joe often would take these Friday night gatherings as occasions to tease Rose about the narrowness of her views about sex. Now listen, Rosie, he would say to her, his blue eyes twinkling. This idea of yours that there is no romance outside of procreation is simply wrong. It was not part of our contract at the altar. The priest never said that, and the books don't argue that. But if you don't open your mind on this, I'm going to tell the priest on you. Hmm? But according to Marie Green, Rose remained firm in her beliefs, and years later, after her last child was born, she simply said no more sex. From then on, she and Joe had separate bedrooms. Rose seemed to have accepted an earlier and outdated Catholic code at face value. According to the strictest interpretation set forth by St. Augustine and Pope Gregory the Great, pleasure was not a fit purpose for intercourse. In contrast, Gloria Swanson was a forerunner of the far more liberated woman who was emerging in the 1920s. An adventurer by nature, determined to live her life as fully as she could, Gloria had early on become an outspoken partisan of the revolution in manners and morals that was promising to bring about fundamental changes in the relationships between men and women. How much Rose knew about Gloria remains an interesting question. At the age of 90, Rose was still outspoken in her assertion that she never worried, not even for a day, about Joe's relationship with Gloria. Journeying back in memory to discover what she wanted to believe, she recalled simply that Gloria needed Joe desperately to straighten out the financial morass that she had created for herself. Unable to cope any more on her own, she had reached out to Joe as the one man who could keep her from going bankrupt. Seen from the distance of time, the image of Gloria that Rose called back to her mind was the image of a talented but lonely woman for whom love and marriage were very complicated matters. Indeed, throughout her life, Rose spoke about Gloria with a strange solicitude, never publicly giving the slightest hint of jealousy, fear, or rage. Yet, it is impossible to believe that Rose did not know and there is at least one story that gives evidence that she did. According to this story, her father, John Fitzgerald, this is Honey Fitz, had come to his own understanding of the situation months earlier, but had preferred to take on Joe first before telling Rose. Geraldine Hannon, Rose's niece, vividly recalls overhearing a loud argument one summer afternoon at the Fitzgerald house, in which Fitzgerald told Joe straight out that unless he stopped the affair with Gloria immediately, he would tell Rose. 
undaunted, Joe threatened, in turn, that if Fitzgerald did tell Rose, he would simply marry Gloria. That's all there was to it. In this first round, Fitzgerald backed down, but apparently some weeks later, Rose's mother, Josie, decided to take the matter into her own hands by forcing Rose to see what everyone else knew. If this is true, it leads one to wonder how much of Josie's telling reflected true concern for her daughter and how much a subliminal desire to retaliate against her for the special love she had always received from her father. There's something about the manner of telling that suggests, you see, you fool, your beloved husband is no different from your beloved father. Now you finally know what men are really like. Even supposing Rose was told to her face about the affair, it seems from all accounts that she willed the repugnant knowledge out of her mind. After all, Rose seemed to have what she wanted in her marriage, children, wealth, and privilege. At the same time, the marriage satisfied what may have been her own desire for sexual distance. Better, perhaps, to follow the patterns set by her mother long ago, to suffer in silence rather than take the enormous risk of shattering the entire family and bringing public disgrace upon herself and her husband. So as long as she felt secure about remaining Mrs. Joseph Kennedy, what did the rest really matter? In this attitude, Rose was not alone. According to Cy Howard, if you looked closely at the marriage of almost any Hollywood producer in those days, you'd find a similar story. No matter what the mistress has, Mrs. Zanuck would say, she's not Mrs. Zanuck, so why should I worry? So long as I've got the house and the name and the position... That's all that counts. With all of this at stake, it is little wonder that Rose never publicly let on that she knew what everyone else around her knew. So long as her marriage remained secure, the pretense allowed her to keep intact the one thing that was sacred to her, the institution of the family. And therein, investigators, lies the answer or at least one of them, anyway, when it comes to the Kennedys. They will factor very heavily into Dominic Dunn's arc of work, but with the Kennedys, the thing that really, really matters, I think, beyond anything else, is the institution of the family and preserving that institution at all costs. And friends, this is where I'm going to leave you today. We will be back next week where I promise we will talk about the last years of Marilyn's life and her death as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today, for your kind emails, for your support on Patreon, for your kind reviews, for telling your friends about Done and Done too. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.